Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what's up, everybody? We are in the midst of an epidemic, or at least from what people say and what we hear, an epidemic. And the epidemic that we're talking about is hunter decline. So we've got some very special guests here today. We've got Emily from the Wisconsin DNR. We've got Micah, who works for Vortex, but has participated in a lot of DNR programs or classes that are designed to mitigate this decline and increase recruitment of hunters. Jimmy to my right, Eric Barber, very frequent guest. To your right, kitty corner, kitty across corner, the table. Across the Across the way, if right. you will. And uh, yeah, so this is a pretty important topic. Emily, you're all pro at this, so we're probably going to lean on you quite a bit. But let's get let's get started. Let's start. Let's, let's, start, in- let's start fixing. Quick. God, I just want to fix the problem. I know so you're fast. so excited. <laughs> Actually, I'm really glad you introed this one because I wouldn't have been able to intro it as well as you just did. Yeah, that was wild. As usual, alphabetical order. Emily, you want to kick off on introing yourself? Who For are you? Sure. What do you do? I'm Emily Eel, and my title is R3 coordinator at the Wisconsin DNR. And so, it's kind of a it's a very new position, and our whole R3 team is really new too. As people, you know, learn more about this epidemic, which is a great word for it. But, you know, it's, it's a really important topic, and so the DNR has addressed that, and our team has come together just in this last year. And so R3 stands for Recruitment, Retention, and Reactivation, and I will be quizzing you all on that in separate rooms <laughs> later on. But um, And that's of hunters, anglers, and shooting sports enthusiasts, so pretty all-encompassing, but those are kind of recreations or activities that have been really uh, popular in the past in the in the 1960s is when they peaked and then so the DNR has been working with those demographics and you know people who are interested in those activities for a long time and now they're declining since the 1980s and our job is to kind of bring that back and there's a whole whole list of implications. I don't know if we'll talk about that later, if I should rattle them up now, but I mean, we could talk for days about how important it is. Just, we're just all hanging off that cliff. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Rattle some off. Well, <laughs> so, I mean, I could give a history lesson or I could give the immediate, you know, problem. What? How much time should I spend on it? Let's, how much time you got, buddy? I'd say yeah. lay it on us. Yeah. yeah, lay it on. Okay. Well, To me, so I didn't grow up as a hunter, and, you know, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. Don't kill me. (laughs) um, (laughs) That's all right. That's all right. But, I mean, hunting wasn't really in the culture there, and so I knew one or two people who who hunted, but other than that, I honestly didn't have a very good opinion of hunters just because I didn't really know any. I didn't know what hunting was like, and you see all the, you know, the media and stuff like that, and it just wasn't very positive for me, but... So what Well, what The epidemic... (laughs) So what changed that, though? Like, kind of what yeah. changed your opinion yeah, about hunters? Yeah. And hunting? Well, so I started to meet some. I branched out, and I went to, you know, Wisconsin for school. And, you know, hunting is such a big part of the culture here in Wisconsin that, you know, I, I remember sitting in my chemistry class, and on the Friday before the nine-day gun season, everybody was gone. And the professor made some comments about, like, gosh, like here we are in Wisconsin. Nobody's at class because deer hunting. And I was like, oh, <laughs> why would you do that? <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I mean, 
literally it was just like an inundation. Like the more, you know, I, the more time I spent in Wisconsin, the more hunters I got to know. And I mean, everybody's so great. And the more, and well, my husband played a big role in this. So I met my husband my senior year of college and he's always been hunting since he was a kid. And just the number of things that we had to connect on was amazing. So I studied conservation in, in school. And so I was learning how to ID all these plant species and animal species and, you know, thinking about ecological communities. And it was amazing because he was already so familiar with that, even though he's an engineer, like he spends his time in a yeah. lab crushing cement blocks and things like that. <laughs> and so I just I just really connected with him so easily. And I've seen a lot of, you know, the more hunters I meet, it seems like so many of them just have that in them and they value that. And it became just a natural fit for me. Mm-hmm. So I started, I he brought me to a learn to hunt program that he was volunteering for. Oh, right. And so it was a turkey one in the spring. And it was actually one of the first adult programs. So Micah was coming into the program shortly after that. But they really focused on just people who were not in that culture growing up. It was, you know, people who were studying wildlife ecology and conservation and agroecology and all these people who wanted to be connected with the land, but they just didn't have that experience. And I think so many of them just, they got it right away, which was really interesting. But so I just, I liked turkey hunting. It was great. I saw turkeys fly down from the roost and I was closer to a deer than I've ever been before. And I slept in the blind and it was great. <laughs> and uh, nice. so I just, I just kept going. I, I participated in a deer learn to hunt and I ate venison, which is amazing. A lot of people think it tastes terrible, but it really doesn't. It's, it's wonderful. It's better than beef in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that I think using the animal was something that was really important to me. And I think that's something that a lot of hunters don't convey enough. Like it's so natural to hunters that they eat the animal or they use it in some way. But I think that that's just, I think people who don't grow up in a hunting culture, hunting family, they just, they like hear people say it and they're like, yeah, but you don't really like it. Or venison's not really good. You just do it to force it down. And you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hunt unless you just like to kill things. So I think that's definitely one thing that people could do more. Isn't there even a statistic out there where, you know, there's of the non-hunting population, like 60% or like the vast majority are in favor of hunting for food? Yes. But, yep. uh, and what is that stat? Is it like, six, like, I thought it was a majority. It is a majority. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but it was way higher than yeah. I thought it was and when I first that, saw that. On the backside of that, that same population, when asked about like trophy hunting, they're like, very against that Mm -hmm. and i think like to your point about how hunters portray what they they do like a lot of times someone might be somebody who's you know going out there and they're trying to shoot a specific class of animal which there's nothing wrong with that and then they post those photos and that's what gets publicized and they don't even take into consideration well now i need to do something that shows about what else i'm doing here well and i think that's a common misconception like people say they hear the word trophy hunting or yeah. trophy hunter which actually i just I don't even like that right. that word but i think like you said trophy hunting and hunting for food are, are oftentimes one the they're one and the same it's the same thing it's just how you're you know how you're phrasing it yeah. or how you're portraying it and i think you know to your point a lot of times 
what we can do a better of. Like as hunters, I always say this, we, we do know the rest of the story, yeah. right? Like we know the A to Z process of, you know, uh, in general, like what it took to harvest that animal or kill that animal, however you want to phrase that. That's another thing. Actually, I don't, I don't shy away from the word kill. I mean, honestly, right. that, that is That's what's what happening. Doing, yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, anyway, you know, speaking of losing your train of thought, but we just, yeah. we don't tell, like, we know the rest of the story and yeah. you for, sometimes you forget to tell that. So from the outside in, right. that can look, you know, mm. unappealing. And and I think mm. one of the things that happens too is, is like, what, what do you like focus on or glorify? And, in, and when I did the learn to hunt deer thing, they talked about this and like the loudest part of the hunting community to a lot of people are those people that have bumper stickers that say like, if it's brown, it's down. If it flies, it dies. If it hops, it drops. And you know, like all this to, to live by, plug. right? Like, but all they see Take is like that. Plug. Thanks a lot, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> but, but all they see is like Hold that on. that culture of the kill, right? And like that's that's like sometimes the loudest part, and that's all they see. They don't see yeah. the part about harvesting and eating the food mm-hmm. and all that good stuff. This the, is this the is Micah, by the, the way. Voice you're hearing, yes, oh. is Micah. We should let him introduce himself real quick too, because we're all very amped up and ready to dive in, which is excellent. Uh, but Micah, real quick, give give the listeners here an idea of, of who you are, what you do. Um, my name is Micah Reeker. I am the copywriter here at Vortex. So I got, I didn't, I grew up in a house where my dad hunted. wasn't really like brought into that. You know, it was like he go to deer camp. He'd go and get some pheasants, some grouse every now and then. I have memories of going out in the backyard and he'd be cleaning a grouse and just to kind of wig me out, he'd like pop the heart in his mouth, you know, <laughs> eat the heart. Oh my gosh. Um, I never... Are you sure he was doing that for real? Like he wasn't like <laughs> magic yeah, tricking was, that thing? It was it was great. I mean, not great. It freaked me out. But it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was something I was always kind of interested or curious about, but I only came to it because like I, I started reading some Michael Pollan stuff and really getting down on kind of factory farming, the way we treated animals. And so I was like, I'm going to be a vegetarian or a pescatarian or whatever, where you only eat what you catch. And uh, I did that for a year, and it was horrible. And, <laughs> and so that was, that was like, t- it's, time to, it's time to take up hunting. Because I really wanted to be a part of, like, the... To me, I was interested in it because of, like, the, the moral side of things. I wanted to be responsible for killing an animal if I was going to choose to eat animals. And so that's kind of how I came into the Learn to Hunt Deer. And what I didn't expect, and what I, I think a lot of people don't expect, is how enjoyable hunting actually is. I mean, once I got over killing the animal, which is never, it's never fun for me, to like, like the killing part of it, but the eating part of it is amazing. Mm-hmm. But the experience of hunting is so much fun. And so then I started just jumping into every Learn to Hunt program I had time for. Mike has been awesome. awesome. Yeah, Very when familiar you, face. When you say, like, every Learn to Hunt program you had time for, that, that was a lot. Because I remember when yeah. we were talking with you and you first started here you mentioned you know a lot of people always ask somebody when they first start here it's kind of like oh you know do you hunt and you said yeah a little bit you know you started relatively recently mm-hmm. and when we started asking you what you hunt you're like well i've done pretty much every learn to hunt program <laughs> in wisconsin you've yeah. gone all over the state you've yeah. hunted things that fly things that run on the ground things that you've fished i think too right yeah I definitely grew up fishing. That was something where I didn't need too much help with. But as far as learn to hunt, I've done deer, turkey, ducks. And then my my favorite, the one that's kind of like had a, a really big effect on me was the learn to hunt with dogs, which was absolutely one of the most fun experiences I've had. I got hmm. to see the dogs work in the field, got to actually go on a pheasant hunt with them which was just, I mean, it kind of opened my eyes to a whole different way of hunting that I'm really looking forward to kind of joining pretty soon. That's super cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, that, and I talk about one where 
people who haven't engaged in that prior to sort of hearing about it or or speaking on it mm-hmm. that they can misconstrue oh, God, or get yeah. the wrong idea for mm-hmm. you know i mean in many places certain certain avenues or certain uses with dogs is not legal or yep. you know uh many people look down on it speak against it you know say it's unfair and i'm sure that was probably you, like you said, it was a pretty eye-opening experience for you. What, what was the biggest thing for you when you did Learn to Hunt with Dogs? Like, actually, I'm curious, how come you even chose to do it? To Learn to Hunt with Dogs? Yeah. Um, I came at it that, again, from kind of a weird angle, and it was much more of like a conservation almost, where there's this statistic that's out there, and of course it's a statistic that I can't remember, but your chances of recovering game with a dog not even a well-trained dog, not even like a finished dog, but just a dog. It goes up like, it's like some massive number, like over 50%. Hmm. And in fact, when we were out there, I think it was actually your dog. I can't remember, <laughs> but I wingtipped a pheasant. Like it was a, a shot. It was kind of far away. It's probably like the fifth or sixth time I've ever shot at a pheasant. <laughs> and I can remember I actually like saw the feather kind of go and the bird just sort of tilted in its flight, and it landed maybe 75 yards away and ran into this clump of just thickness, you know, like stuff that I probably couldn't have made it into. <laughs> and I felt immediately horrible. I was like, that was a stupid shot. Why did I do that? And they sent the dog in, and like five minutes later, it comes running up with basically an alive bird. <laughs> but it had been wingtipped. It had been like wounded to the point that it probably wouldn't have, it would have been coyote food or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That dog comes running back with that bird, and it was like, oh my gosh, you know, like I didn't, that wasn't even a solid shot, and I'm going to get this bird, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't wind up being wasted, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really cool thing to point out, too, is like, number one, like you were able to recover that bird. Awesome. Right. And, you know, the use of a dog aided great like greatly in that like probably like you said wouldn't have happened had you not had a dog but then it's also good to point out i feel like to maybe first-time hunters or new hunters or people are thinking about hunting that i would say hunting's not perfect right and it's not going to go right every time no and even if it was maybe like maybe it was even a close well maybe it seemed like oh that's a gimme shot right those don't always go perfect too so i mean it's like and and i think that's life that's anything in life so it's like you want to I guess, whatever, do as good a job as possible, but also you can't beat yourself up at the same time if something doesn't go absolutely absolutely right. And even to take that one step further, like we talked about how, you know, the hunting population has different perceptions. Talk about an awesome way to get people involved with hunting, whether or not they're, whatever they feel about the act of hunting or the act of shooting an animal, people like spending time with the, with dogs, you know? There's definitely statistics about that. Just like people get into hunting. So I think it was from the Rough Grouse Society, Mm -hmm. actually. They surveyed their members and it was like everybody over age 60 shot their first grouse without a dog and everybody under that age or the majority obviously had shot their first grouse with a with dog. dog. And I just think that no people kidding. Love, yeah. Huh. yeah. That is super yep. cool. It's, That's interesting. It's a huge hook. And I think yeah. having the dog was one of the main reasons that I kept hunting. Like I liked the experience, but I had always wanted a dog and I love seeing working dogs. Yeah. Just They're so talented and so beautiful and so happy doing it. And, I think that I kept hunting for her, for sure. Your dog yeah. is a Jedi, too. Like, it's unbelievable. <laughs> <Yeah>. It <laughs> heals, it follows right next to her everywhere she goes. It's incredible. That is something you hear a lot from people who hunt with dogs, is, or that I've noticed. Sometimes people peg it as, 
like a lazy man or woman's way of hunting, you know, because it's like, ah, yeah, you just go out and the dogs <laughs> yeah. do all the work. Like you're just sitting, you're sitting back in your fold up chair with a beer and the <laughs> right, dogs. right. And it's like, bring them this way, Sam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you just go out and it's basically laid out for you. But that's not the case. I mean, the amount of work that you have to put into the dogs, like you know, if your dog's like a Jedi, so to speak, um, you've had to put in a ton of work to make it that way. Yeah. And you hear a lot of the people that hunt with dogs. And the actual hunt and then the actual act of going out and killing is almost second yeah. to yeah. the whole experience of training the dog, getting the dog ready, you know, uh, actually having it out there, watching it work, watch, like seeing how you have broken the barrier between species to exactly. make another species. Yeah. It's amazing. And you become a better unit together than you would be alone or it would be alone. Like you're tag teaming. Yeah. That's just poetry. In my mind. Yeah. Like, yeah. People, people don't do that. that. Down? People don't do that with cats. People don't do that. Well, I don't know. Maybe some indigenous somewhere does it with cats, but people don't do it great with other people. I was yeah. just going to bring that up. You know, they don't do it with rodents. Some people do it with falcons, which I'm extraordinarily okay. interested yeah. in. But there's something about like dogs. Humans have been hunting with dogs for bazillions of years or whatever. Yep. Oh yeah. That's that's no, I mean, like not even said, about the, the kill with that. You know, people yeah. would rather watch the dog work, and then that is icing on the cake. Put the work into making sure the dog does what they. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think it's icing on the cake, and I think it like in I haven't hunted over dogs enough, but like you see, taking of that animal is like, like you said, it's the icing on the cake, but it also completes the experience, and you see all your work. You know, and mm-hmm. I guess that's any hunt. But you similar. see all your work come it's to fruition in that single yeah. moment. Just like you said, it's similarly to somebody who goes out it, long range hunting gets bagged on a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And some of the guys who go out and do long range shooting out west, mm-hmm. they shoot and kill a deer that's nine hundred yards away, and immediately everybody's on their keyboard. That's too far. You can't <laughs> shoot that. Well, it's like, well, you can't. But little did you know, this dude's been reloading his own ammunition, finding the node, shooting, <laughs> mm-hmm. practicing, hitting, you know, going sub him away at, you know, whatever. And just so that all culminates up to that one point that you saw on YouTube and freaked out about because you thought he just <laughs> yeah. kind of like winged it and said, Jerry, there's one. Hop out of the UTV and sling it. Yeah, it's that, so that much preparation. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I think I think the preparation, honestly, and Micah, maybe you can weigh into this, is like, a lot of that is what is gratifying to me about hunting. And I think a lot of the people who are participating in these learn-to-hunt programs, hunt-for-food programs, like, they don't want it to be easy. They want to put in the work. Like right. Micah said, they don't want, you know, to see a sheet. This is such a cliche thing almost, but, you know, a hunk of beef on a styrofoam tray wrapped in plastic. Like, yeah. that's, it's just not very mm-hmm. gratifying anymore. And But I was going to say about the dog, I spent, like, two years, four days a week, just working with her so consistently. And um, one of my favorite things really is just watching her in the grouse woods. She's mm-hmm. really cautious on grouse. And it's it's like artwork in motion, how yeah. she just works them and she doesn't push them, but she's always tracking them. And she's so intense. It's, it's just something, just one small example of something 
that you see when you hunt that you don't see in other situations. Yeah. And yep. definitely think people are looking for that. Mm-hmm. Talk about like a closer connection too with your dog. You know, some right. people they have a dog and it's like, yeah, I leave the dog at home in the crate yeah. while I work. <laughs> yeah. and then I come back, the dog comes out, it's all anxious because it's been cooped up all day. So it sprints around the house, annoys the heck out of me, bites the kid, eats the thing off the counter, tears right. my shoe apart, pukes then on I, the floor, pukes on the floor. <laughs> then I put it back up at night, and then it sleeps overnight, and the whole process starts over again. But dang, I love that dog. <laughs> That's right. You know, and it's kind of like yep. okay, well, you know, then this other person with a dog. They're out there. They're taking the dog everywhere with them. They're working with it constantly. The dog's getting enjoyment out of being worked, you know, getting energy out, running around. And, well, and I it's think just you, you, you wind up with a happier dog. You wind up with a happier person, better relationship with the dog. Well, and I think, you know, of course, this is turning in the Vortex, you know, dog podcast. Yeah, right. Right. There's <laughs> other stuff we'll get into here, too. But, but both you guys brought up one thing, and I think sometimes this is like a misconception, you know, maybe with the greater public at times. But, you know, some of these these breeds that that are sporting dogs, they are at their happiest right. when they're engaging in these activities. Like, they truly love it. Like, if you've seen a dog in the early a.m. and it sees its owner put the shotgun by the door, boom. <laughs> like, yeah. that dog is as excited as you can be. And, you know, you talked about a deeper connection. Rarely have I seen a deeper connection between an owner and their dog when it's a sporting dog. Yep. Sweet. All right. All, All right. right. We talked a lot. We talked <laughs> about, we talked about dogs a lot. I got Blanco, a, what kind of dog, you already have a dog and it's a pretty cool dog. He's an amazing dog. He's a pretty sweet dog. Uh, he has all kinds hunt. of hunt in him, but he's, he's an older boy and I, he's not going to be the kind of dog I want to take after birds or anything like that. He caught a deer while I was away on oh vacation. My God. <laughs> he caught a deer? Yeah, it was a fawn. But I mean, oh, what okay. kind of dog is it? You seen Ozzy? He's like a, a husky shepherd. Okay. Yeah, and he <laughs> he had the thing by the neck. My poor mother in law had to yank him off of this deer. By husky, Micah meant wolf shepherd. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> dire wolf. Illegal to hunt deer with dogs, but yeah. you're right. Yes. He has hunting. <laughs> I found him in northern Wisconsin and just yeah. put him in my truck. Micah, that's a wolf. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but I, I'd, I'd, I'm really looking for a kind of a, a you know a smaller dog. So English Cocker or Brittany are the two ways. I want to hunt over a flushing dog before I kind of commit. But the cool. hunting over the pointing dogs was so much fun. Cool. And that was one of the things you guys were talking about the the connection between the hunter and the dog. I cracked up when we were out because guys would miss on shots who own these dogs. And all they could talk about is like, oh, he's looking at me. He's, he's ashamed, or like, oh, you <laughs> know what I mean. <laughs> the dog's blaming them for missing. Yeah, exactly. You two legged weirdo. Lot. <laughs> they do give you like a what the hell look. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I right. got a question. Send it. I'm gonna tell you a question. Speaking of hunter decline, so like, what are you guys? I'm switching gears here. Yep. Sorry. Yes. Well done. There's a lot Please. of dog owners out there like cripes. What are you guys seeing as far as like hunter decline, like? Who's falling off right now? Yeah, so a lot of it, this is very demographical information, but just looking at, you know, I mentioned that the highest number of hunters in the U.S., both percentage-wise but also flat-out numbers-wise, was during the baby boom generation. Mm -hmm. And so, obviously, just population skyrocketed. And at that time... I, and I don't know what it was. It was very generational. I don't know if it was like Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, kind of just like love yeah. seeing that, want to be a part of it, have the raccoon skin cap or whatever. But hunting was just at its highest at that point. And so now as we're, you know, as a country and society moving along, those people are aging. And that's such a common topic nowadays. 
but they're they're kind of aging out and just as is natural. So a lot of the people who hunted at that time are just, you know, hanging up their boots and uh, deciding that now is a good time to quit. And um, so we're losing a lot of hunters that way. But also, you know, we've we've run the models and the the statistics show that it's not just that baby boomers are aging out of the you know the the hunter population. It's also that you know younger folks, people in Generation X, they're just not. They might have hunted when they were kids, and they just never come back to it. But it's really, you know, this group of men who are between age twenty five and forty five who are not showing up anymore and it's it's like compounded because those are the people who would be teaching yep. their kids to hunt right. and so we're really going to be seeing a drop off you know as, yep. as we get older so if you're out there it's really important that you take your kids hunting <laughs> right um and but interestingly enough i mean the only demographic of hunters that's actually on the rise is women so I mean, it's just been climbing since the turn of the century. So I think at the turn of the century is maybe like 2%, and now it's at 11%. Really? Wow. Yeah. Awesome. And, um, you know, the researchers say that, that women are never going to make up for the loss in the number of male hunters that we have. But it's just interesting, you know, how that population is changing and what are we going to see in a few years or 10 years or 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know... In my opinion, being a woman, <laughs> I uh, I think it's really important to facilitate women who are interested in hunting yeah. because you know, you know, you guys can probably attest that it's more fun to go hunting with a friend or a buddy or you know a family member than it is to go all by yourself. And sometimes it's nice to go by yourself, but the mm-hmm. people who keep you going are if you go with somebody or somebody asks you, and if you have multiple people hunting in a family, I just think that can only serve us best yeah so with all that stuff in mind like we've we've talked a little bit about like these learn hunt programs and stuff like that but could you give us like a high level overview of what those programs are and then how you guys are filling those classes and even more more so than that how are you filling those with the people that you think are the best fit for like rebuilding up that hunting population definitely so i can give you kind of the you know how Learn to Hunt started and then how it's evolved into Hunt for Food and some of the programs that we're doing now. So it was in the 1990s that people first started noticing this trend of declining hunters. And so it was actually a researcher at UW-Madison named Tom Heberlein. He, he, he published the first paper that I'm aware of about just saying, hey, like, look at this, you know, lots riding on these these people who are declining and based on his models it's not going to go back up so I mean the DNR responded really fast I don't know if it was kind of you know a joint effort or um, if they just were hearing about that and said okay we need to do something but so 1996 is when the learn to hunt program started and it was really not a very well known about program I think the chief warden Randy Stark said it was like the DNR's best kept secret yeah. or something like that. <laughs> and um, but the Learn to Hunt program, it put in place license waivers and or legal waivers anyway. So the idea was that people start learning to hunt as kids. So we need to get more kids into this population. And so and there were si- kind of some assumptions that were made about why kids weren't hunting anymore and some of those were like well, you know, they're not having a good enough opportunity during the regular seasons, um, so they they waived the season dates so you can 
um, conduct a learn to hunt program outside the regular season. They waive licenses, bag limits, uh, except for waterfowl, which is federally designated. So in Wisconsin, that it's so interesting that so many states they don't they don't have legal waivers like that even now. So some states are you know following that trend and, and latching on, but you know so this infrastructure was put into place and not too many people were participating. And finally, you know, the program switched from the Division of Wildlife up into the Bureau of Law Enforcement because they had some, you know, opportunity to grow the program. And finally, they got some extra funding kicked in and, you know, hired an actual staff person <laughs> to work on this program. And they were like, wow, you know, 96% of the participants in the Learn to Hunt program are going on to buy licenses. That's amazing. <laughs> like, that is really awesome. Really great success yeah. rates. And they started diving into it a little bit more and saying, well, who are these participants and where are they coming from? And what they were finding was that a lot of the participants were kids who were actually coming from hunting families themselves. And I forgot to mention that the Learn to Hunt program also waives the need for hunter education before going on an actual hunt. And so um, a lot of the participants were, were coming straight out of hunter education classes, which is great. Like it's a super high quality first hunt experience, very safe, you're one-on-one -on -one mentor, but it's not it wasn't really, you know, the number of hunters was just still declining. Yeah, we were getting those <laughs> right. people already. Exactly. Right. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yep. So um, it's a great program. Like, people love it. Hunters and um, people in the community, even if they don't hunt, they love volunteering for these programs, which is so nice to see everybody coming together as a group, and it's so friendly, and lots of people, you know, do fish fries, and then they get up early to go hunt, and it's just, it's so fun to be there. And Fish everybody fries always has for a good time. Those outside of Wisconsin is a thing <laughs> oh. on Friday nights. You'd have you, ha you got to be there. I, I don't know how to explain it. I was, gonna, I was gonna, we were talking it's about a Friday night thing. It's a Wisconsin Friday night thing. As a transplant, it was completely foreign to me. <laughs> I absolutely love it now. It's almost like this completely arbitrary thing to look forward to all week. Exactly. If you come to Wisconsin, never pass up the opportunity for fish fry on Friday. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, super fun program, but just realizing that, you know, this isn't really making a dent in the in the trend that we're seeing. And so some of the things that we we started doing after that was saying like, okay, what is our goal? We want to increase the number of hunters or slow the decline down. And so what do we need to do to meet that goal? And so you really had to start thinking outside the box a little bit more. So where do you find people who didn't grow up in hunting families or who don't have a network? And I think kids are great to bring into that, but it's very, you know, if you think about the first time you went hunting, you were probably little, right? Mm -hmm. Like very small. And you didn't, you probably didn't even have a license, but you were going with your dad over and over and over again every year until you could buy a license and hunt. And then he was probably still with you for so yeah. many years and before you ever went all by yourself. And so that's just a lot of, you know, if a kid doesn't have a mentor like that in their family who can really be so close to them, it's really hard to teach a kid from a non-hunting family to hunt because the you have to find a relationship that's just really tight and close and trusting and, you know, you have to have time for that. And so kids can't make decisions by themselves, really. You know, they can't buy their own stuff. They can't drive themselves anywhere. They can't 
even really decide what to do with their own time. So you really have to rely on their parents. So we started looking into, well, you know, who else can we <laughs> find? And so we started looking at adults who didn't come from hunting families, but who were interested in it. And so a lot of those people are actually from the campus community at UW-Madison. So I studied conservation biology. Micah, what did you study at Madison? No, I, okay. I got roped in completely by chance. Somebody okay. just said, hey, this is nice. happening. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but probably through the campus you community the in trend, some way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For the I'm sake the of the example, just pretend just say like yes. just <laughs> but, I was um, studying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mentioned before that so many of these people who want to learn how to be connected with the land, it was just a ringer. Like It was so easy to get them interested in this program and what they really you know wanted to learn about was you know how can I do the work how can I become more connected to my food how can I be involved in this entire process instead of having to buy that hunk of beef on mm -hmm. a styrofoam tray and so that's worked really well for us and you know for our deer program which I'd say is definitely the most popular program I'm always turning people away. Like we advertise it through the environmental studies student uh, list. And we just don't have enough mentors to be one-on-one -on -one with these people. And we don't often have enough land for to you know spread people yep. out enough. Mm -hmm. um, but everybody wants to learn how to deer hunt. And you think about it, it's the biggest bang for your buck, so right. to speak, if you're looking for food especially. So, right. Right. In, in your opinion, is deer hunting, is that a great place to start? <laughs> I was interested in that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it is. And I think it is because of the audience we're looking at, which is adults. They're, a lot of them are being transplanted into Wisconsin. They're seeing this culture yeah. and they want to be a part of that. And I think that's great. And so, and if you are in it for food, I mean, one shot and you've got 50 pounds or more. Right, right. Um, but, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, we should really be doing more small game classes. And I, I do tend to agree with that. I shot, uh, or I went squirrel hunting a lot before I ever shot a deer. Um, just thinking about a lot of, and a lot of people have personal opinions. Like a lot of people feel more comfortable shooting a bird rather than a mammal yep. and things like that. Less personal. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I tend to have a harder less, time shooting less birds Less close than to me, right. <laughs> I guess. Less big brown eyes and eyelashes. Yep. <laughs> Humanizing wildlife. Anyways, we totally digress. I know. <laughs> but um, I guess for like the purpose of teaching people to hunt independently and especially you know these people who are you know from basically they're in an urban area right. Madison Wisconsin it's a lot of it is about access yeah. like yeah. it's really hard to find access for deer in Wisconsin mm -hmm. and so you know you can hunt public land but it's either really crowded or you need to do a hell of a lot of work or you know you can go after other species that mm -hmm. also provide meat so bunnies we've been doing bunny programs we've been doing bird programs like pheasants that are stocked around the southern part of the state i would love to do a grouse program we haven't been That'd be awesome. quite able that, to yeah, do that yet certain. there's there's a couple people in the state who who have launched grouse programs and people really like it but just kind of looking for that local where you know how can you be successful locally yeah. and um and it's got to be accessible enough where you know, it doesn't take a weekend or a week to be yeah. able to go on a trip or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's such a good point to point to like bring to light because 
you you talked about like the generational gap. Like in the 1960s, there were way more people living in rural areas than there are today. We are literally living on top of one another today. Apartments, you know, stuff like that downtown. Now you're taking what you, your population used to be more distributed in these rural areas. People could literally go in the back in their backyard and shoot a deer, shoot a, a rabbit for food. We talked about this just the other day when, yeah. we, when we brought up the video games thing, how people got introdu- introduced to guns, you know, in the, the 1960s was their dad came home from work, gave them the 22. They went in the backyard and shot it. Yep. You do that in downtown Madison and <laughs> I'll be, you know, I'll see you in the clink someday, you know? You plan but, on going? I guess that did <laughs> just literally imply that. Yeah. But even but when we talked to... Depends. Uh, did you pay for that Reese's? I did. I okay. did pay for it. Then but where I'm going with even that... When, even when we talked to... Uh, sorry to interrupt, Eric, but um, Doug, I'm blanking right now, uh, who we went squirrel hunting with. Darren. Yeah. Oh. Even even back then, even in Madison proper, he actually used to walk along the railway with his 22. So it's like even just the city has changed a little bit. Yeah. But continue. But... Uh, Pat Durkin, that's what I was going to say. Oh, Pat. not Doug. Yeah. yeah, I, I, I was him. thinking yeah, Doug. Pat and, Durkin. It's yeah. the Durkin and the Durin that I always yeah. get mixed up. Yeah. Anyways, so like now, you you know, access is such a big issue. And that's what these Learn to Hunt programs really can button up for you. Like they'll take care of that access and they'll give you that opportunity, whether that's for, you know, you name the species, it's there. And then, you know, what do you, so after, after the hunt, how does that work with like the food aspect of it? Because sure. a lot of these people... Anyone can pull the trigger on something with the right instruction, but then it turns into, oh, crap, what now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of the participants are looking for. I don't know if you can speak to that, Micah. Yeah, it, you can take it as far as you want in the program, which is really neat. They, they offer a special, like at least when I was taking the deer class, there's a special kind of like side class where you could go and actually watch a deer get butchered, basically starting from the hide and going down. I wasn't able to do that. Uh, my mentor helped me take the deer to a processor, kind of walk me through what, you know, like if you have this much steak, you can have this much, you know, you can have this made into sauce, like going through how a deer gets broken down and all that. But it's, it's really, you can take it as far as you want. There's people who can, who I think from the Learn to cl- Hunt class, who took the deer back in the garage and broke it down. Like That's they awesome. tried to do it themselves, yeah. That's yeah, cool. so the Hunt for Food class, which evolved from Learn to Hunt, So the Learn to Hunt program is typically like a weekend-long program. So you do your classroom session on Friday, and then you hunt Saturday, Sunday. So the the Hunt for Food program, like the people who are getting, they just want a lot more information. They don't want to just pull the trigger. They want to know, like, you know, are these people people that I feel comfortable with? So we spend a whole session just as a getting to know you. Why are you here? Like, what are your values? Why do you want to hunt? And And I think that was huge for me. Yeah, I I think that's one of the most important parts of the class for people. But then, you know, once you've established that rapport, you feel comfortable going hunting with these people, thinking about taking a life. You know, it's it's important to have people to talk about that with. Mm-hmm. So in the next classroom, we usually go to a shooting range. So a lot of the people in the classes have never shot a gun before. Yeah, so even we, a twenty-two. Like yeah. Some people, the first gun they ever shot was like a, a rifle, like a hunting rifle. Yeah. Like, not even a BB gun. <laughs> They've wow. never touched a gun before. Zero to 60. Yeah. <laughs> Zero to 308. <laughs> well put. Uh, so yeah, we, we typically start them off on 22s and then work up to the deer hunting calibers and we go through some different hunting situations. So like sitting in a chair, sitting, you know, on, you know, kneeling or something like that in the prone position and just kind of going through, all right, a deer is going to walk up. You're going to see it. It'll probably stop, but 
you know, we've got time, but it's not going to stay there forever. So, you right. know, <laughs> yep, exactly. And I think that's really valuable for people too. And then uh, the next class is the butchering class. So we actually take a deer, hang it up in the Burr Resources Training Center, I think is the official name. <laughs> but um, yeah, and we've got great mentors and instructors who they can just butcher a deer like that. Yeah. And so we literally take the skin off break it all down and we start giving knives out to people and saying, here, all right, you do this because, you know, it's one thing to watch that. Right. And yeah. I think butchering is one of the most overwhelming totally. things mm -hmm. for people. I mean, we, really we did a butchering thing this year, like, you know, processing your deer after you brought it in and, you yep. know, yep. broken down. And l literally, like, we, you know, between the people that were at the table, we had, like, literally decades of hunting experience. Yeah. And we're still, like, okay, like, what cut of meat is this again? <laughs> so it is, you know, it, to that point, it's very intimidating, and it's a big learning curve. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't well, know and why it, I thought, too, like, when I break down a deer, I guess I shouldn't even say I don't know why, because I do know why. When I break down a deer, not nearly as, I don't want to say grossed out, because I don't want to sound like, you know, I just get all, like, cringy around beef right <laughs> but when i'm grabbing like the pack of beef or a steak out of the styrofoam thing that's wrapped in plastic i always pick it up and i'm i'm working with it or i, I just always feel a little bit weird it's definitely like immediately go to wash the hands as soon as possible <laughs> yeah. after touching that but when we were working on breaking down a deer yeah i know you'd where be, this came you'd from. be ripping apart a you'd be cutting it into different things and you put that piece over there. You grab your knife. You're going all around. At no point was I thinking, Bleh. yeah, right. know, like I gotta wash my hands. Soon. You know, at no point. But yep. it's, it's much cleaner. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd say for me, it was almost even the opposite. Like, so I grew up in a hunting family, but for my first few years that we went deer, we're pro predominantly deer hunting. You know, some grouse hunting, and you know other things. But I mean, predominantly deer hunting. But the first years I went, like we didn't. Like, we never got a deer. We're hunting blacktails in western Washington, mm -hmm. which isn't, like, a super crazy high success rate, I don't think, compared to, like, you know, maybe around here. And then also, you know, we were kids with my dad, so I don't think we were really No concept help. of sound. <laughs> no concept of sound. <laughs> yeah, you know, sent, paying attention. Like, so I'm not sure we were helping the deer hunting situation, but I do remember when we finally got one, you know, so that was, like, something that was kind of foreign to me, yeah. right? And so, like, I was used to having, you know, a steak wrapped in cellophane, and all of a sudden, right. like... All of a sudden, it became very, very, very real, which was, like, it wasn't bad, but it was also, like, I mean, I guess that was probably the first time, like, I truly realized, even though I knew, but, like, well, that's where meat comes from, yep. you know, and yep. it was, like, startling, I'd say, but also, yeah. like, enlightening and exciting at the same time. I no longer walk through the butcher's section in the grocery store and think, oh, it all looks so good. <laughs> I walk through, and I'm kind of thinking... Eh, crap, I got to get some out of here because my freezer's empty. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. so conversely, like nowadays, like Eric and I or whatever, we could go hunt deer, get it broke down, and five minutes later, if somebody's got a fry pan or a fire... It's going on there. Like, oh, yes. So it's just interesting. So I think, I guess that's like, that was my natural progression. Mm -hmm. I could see like somebody who, you know, not hunted their whole life, like it's okay to, I guess, be scared a little bit. Right, yeah. yeah. You know? The food element has really come on scene a lot lately, and I think it's because a lot of people have realized what you were just describing earlier, that, you know, you guys are finding that hunter decline is a real thing. And in order to get new people into the hobby, the sport, the lifestyle, it's not so much just relying on 
dad to take out the kids, honey, you're kind of relying on finding new avenues to get people into it. And a lot of those might be people that are real interested in the environment and, you know, all those kinds of things. And without being too just like throwing a blanket over everything or, or being too general, I think that those kinds of folks, sort of the quote hippies, you know, <laughs> that I think a lot of people Foodies. say food. Yeah. Yeah. They, they'll, they get a Don't bad rap. The word. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they get a bad rap in the hunting and the shooting sports and culture sometimes because they've started out as sort of, you know, like a, like a hippie who didn't previously agree with them or in what they mm-hmm. did and now all of a sudden they see them hunting, they see them discussing, talking about firearms, and you've seen people saying, oh, they're trying to infiltrate the hunting market and collapse us from the inside out or whatever. And yeah. and uh, I've found that kind of baffling because... I think it's a boogeyman mentality. It, it is. It's it is. Very, it's very boogeyman in many ways. And a lot of times it's the same people who look around, they're like, they say to themselves, look at all these city slickers around here. None of these people ever had dirt under their fingernails or, you know, wore boots or, you know, none of these people, they're all wearing jeans. They never got dirt on them. And you think to yourself, okay, well now they're hunting. Right. But now those people turn into, oh, well, they're just a bunch of hippies and they all, you know, they don't actually, and, and they don't. Just because they only own one gun, they must not like guns, right. or they don't own an <laughs> AR-15, they only own a bolt-action hunting rifle, so they're anti-AR-15, yeah. you know, they they want to take away our, our our modern sporting, or whatever, and semi-automatics, and who knows what, all of a sudden, all these theories and just crazy stuff comes out. I think know? I think the person that gets lumped into that, and which is a real, very legit problem, I mean, you go on any, like, forum or any, like, social media platform, and you lose faith in humanity sometimes when you do start really getting into that. But I think what a lot of that crowd that you just kind of described, they're at this level, whatever, that they're at. There's stages of anything, stages of being a hunter. And they're, like, at this stage where they want to see, and they're they're surrounding themselves by only their group of people, and they put on the blinders, you know, and they forget where they started. And now, today... Where they where that person started maybe thirty years ago isn't the same as where people are starting right now, and the fact of the matter is like if we want to continue having these things that we have, we need to start being more accepting of these different entry points and different values for getting started. You mm-hmm. know. Well, and I think you're talking about differences, right? And like instead of looking at how we're different and saying like we're different this way, so I don't yeah. like you. It's like, well, let's find the common ground yeah. and start there. Yeah, I, I think that yeah. with the learn to hunt thing, that was one of the things that I was really impressed with is all the mentors who volunteer from that are coming from very different places themselves. Yeah. But something they all have in common is like the passion for hunting. But it was it was really cool for me because they, like one guy, I, I did learn to hunt turkey. There's one guy who was just like you would expect, like people in their mind, like he's a stereotypical hunter. And I know somebody who got paired with him, and they were kind of like, oh, God, you know, he's <laughs> going to be having a whole bunch of chew in the blind yeah, and yeah. all this, like, like, out there. But they had the best experience. And, like, like these people saw eye to eye. He taught them everything he knew about turkey hunting. They got a turkey, set him up for success and all that. But it really brings you together with people where you kind of, you might otherwise be looking at them kind of, like, out of the side of your eye. <laughs> a little bit like, I don't know about you. Yeah. You know, like, I think. <laughs> well, so it, yeah. yeah, not all hunters have to look the same. Right, right. exactly. Which mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people people get the idea that all hunters have to look the same. Right. You can be 
people, some people have noticed on the podcast thus far when they watch on video, they notice that I'm wearing sandals because it's summer out. <laughs> and uh, and it's not necessarily my choice. I also have to wear sandals. Long story. Uh, really? But I can wear sandals and hunt. I'm not going to hunt. I'm not going to hunt in my sandals. But uh, some some sandal unless wear, we're in Hawaii, some, which we some sandal wearing city slicker can go hunting. Yeah. And, but you know what I'm getting at is a lot of people think, you know, well if you don't, I don't know what. I don't, if no, you don't look it's, just it's, like it's me, like, then I don't yeah, like yeah. you. It's or just you can't. A, a good reminder without like getting preachy on on a high horse. But yeah. you know, don't judge a book by by its cover. And some dude in, in a slick, puffy jacket might be the coolest hunter that you ever hunted with. And some dude with a dip in his mouth that's just an old farmhand might be the coolest dude you ever yeah. hunted with. Or female, woman, whatever. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the great thing about um, that, too, oh, is like ahead. the... I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's okay. <laughs> but I just... I love it because all those people have such, like, different experience, like, sets. Like, some of them have only ever hunted public land. Yep. You know, like, they don't have relatives or anything like that. So they, they can give you insight into how to hunt really heavily trafficked mm-hmm. land. And some some guys have hunted up north, you know, down out, you know, big game hunting, you name it. And so with, with everybody in the Learn to Hunt program, I got a different taste of what hunting could be and different tips for how to hunt different yeah. areas. And it was coming from people, just like you guys are saying, who, I don't know, vastly different people, like professionals in, you know, white-collar jobs, professionals in blue-collar jobs, everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say one of the most fun and sometimes difficult parts of the hunt for food or coordinating these programs is the mentor hunter matchmaking, <laughs> you know, time where, Ooh. you know, you, you get these people and you want them to have a good experience. And so, but, you know, the people who are the mentors and volunteering for this, they have so much knowledge and experience, but obviously all very different. And so it's, it's a lot of fun to yeah. take a look at the participants and take a look at who you've got as mentors and say like, all right, who's going to have fun together. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Um, I work with a few people on this, but uh, you know, some, some of the instructors and the coordinators know certain mentors better than others. And there have been times where there's like this grizzled guy. And <laughs> I remember one of the wildlife biologists at the DNR, she was like, well, this guy is really grouchy and just kind of like rough around the edges. But one time he went out with this really bubbly, like chatty girl and they had a blast. So <laughs> let's pair him up with her. <laughs> and, yeah. and again, just great experience. So sometimes it's a shot in the dark and sometimes, you know, right away, who's going to get along well. Yeah. But just like Micah said, developing your network and going with lots of different people it helps you develop your identity as a hunter you pick up new things no matter who you're talking to so it's you know having that network is one of the most important things that people can grab if they're trying to figure out how to hunt because just like you guys said there's decades or sometimes centuries of knowledge among certain people and you can't you can't learn that from books or our our three reminds me of 50 percent conservation understanding 50 percent social sciences oh yeah like (laughs) yeah which is really interesting that's an interesting dynamic to think Mm -hmm. about definitely i'm kind of an introvert and not always a people person so it's it's fun just uh it's definitely stretched me and put me outside of my box which has been really helpful Mm -hmm. so it's good to make new friends well i imagine you could go into a learn to hunt program like let's say it's the learn to hunt deer program but along your path on that hunt 
you know, you're with somebody that, you know, is pretty probably an adept woodsman. or So, so you're going to learn probably so many things beyond just deer hunting. You might oh, yeah. flush a wood duck and find out that, oh, well, he's here because he's doing this and there's acorns over here and it's this time of year. So I think, you know, I mean, that's important to remember that, yeah. you know, you're, you're going to get a lot more out of it than, you know, maybe even what you think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and one of the other cool things about it, too, is from the very beginning, I remember they said this in the class, and I thought it was kind of strange at first, but they said, we, if we get out there and we're sitting in the blind together and that deer walks out and you get it in your sights and you can't pull the trigger, that's okay. You know, and, like, they, they make it very clear to you that, you know, that you don't have to kill something. You know, you're not, you're not like, being graded or judged. Right. You know, and one of the mentors actually said one of the best times he's ever had taking somebody out, they went out and the, a deer came by pretty early on. The person had it in the crosshairs, couldn't pull the trigger, decided not to, and they just sat there talking the rest of the time. He had the best time just doing that. That's so cool. I would have yeah, told that, that person is. they ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark well, is and the guy that Jimmy described. <laughs> anyway, I'd like to sign well, actually, up to mentor next week. Uh, <laughs> you were uh, my mentor, along uh, with uh, Ryan Muckenhern. I Yeah, I reckon so. Both of you guys. That was a great trip. Being Still one of my most favorite... Still, just gonna with say, one of my uh, most favorite with, trips. With hey. what you just said, you know, clearly I was relying primarily on Ryan Muckenhern as, uh, as you <laughs> should. You I think I gave you that <laughs> advice early on. Yeah, and you were kill just it or you hate yourself forever, <laughs> Jimmy. <Yeah. laughs> Telling me to just shove off, you know. But um, no. Micah, you got two little kiddos, right? Yep. And what are your thoughts now after having done uh, the Learn to Hunt programs that you've done? What? How do you? suppose you're going to introduce them to now your so my oldest boy i i have first i have i'm very lucky to have some private land that i can hunt on so i have a lot of more opportunity to kind of do this type of thing but the last time i got and this was actually a couple of years ago i got the biggest deer i've ever shot it was just huge and we had to drive a truck out there and like use rope to pull it into the back of the truck and all that but uh when my father-in-law went back to get the truck he also brought my son out who's at the time was three i think mm-hmm and, you know, we, we let him walk up to the deer and kind of take a look. And it started a conversation that still goes on. Like, when we eat meat now, he asked me what the meat is. That's so cool. And cool. it's just, it's it's healthy and it's good. And it's let me talk to him about kind of where meat comes from and also death, which is kind of a mm-hmm. much deeper thing. He asked me if it hurt the animal and we have those kind of talks, you know. And so it's it's been really good. And, and he is Jack to go squirrel hunting. <laughs> he really wants to go. That's my, my kind nice. of my favorite way to hunt right now. Yeah. Awesome. It's, it's it's great. You know, it's let me have talks with my kids that I, my son, my my oldest, that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And it's it's kind of introduced him to something I think is really important and something I, he'll kind of be I don't know, into the rest of his life. I'm definitely going to get them into hunting and start him off with squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> smaller game. I think that's, and you kind of touched on this earlier, like Micah is the person that we need to get. And I think you implied this or even probably said it, but like now you've got, an adult hooked who can now take his mm-hmm. kids hunting and introduce them. So you built Definitely, another mentor yeah. that anyway, I think, I yeah. think these, you know, these adult hunters that maybe haven't had the access or the opportunity are, I mean, that's, you know, and I think you already implied that that's the for future. sure. Yeah. I think it's also important. So, you know, talking about this, you know, this group of adults who are, you know, in, from the Madison community and they're studying these certain majors and things like that. I think that's, that's what we found has worked for us. That's like, making some kind of difference but you know for for people who for other people 
you know, there's kind of this prescription, like you don't have to, we would love for you to mentor. That'd be great. Call me. But you know, if, if you, if you have friends or families or nieces or nephews or, um, one of my hunting mentors, he has a practice grandson and granddaughter. (laughs) But, um, you know, if there's people in your community who you enjoy spending time with that don't hunt, like that's, that can be an easy inroad too. Like you don't have to go with somebody that you've never met before, who you don't have a lot in common with. I think that it can be an important way to share your passion and just, you know, being able to have that experience, even if it's a bad experience, the bad experiences hunting always make the best stories. Well, and yep. important too is I remember the first time that I carried a rifle on the public land, I felt like a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> it's because I'd never hunted in my life before. Yeah. And like when, when we talk about mentorship, it's not just about, we already touched on this a little bit, but it's not just about harvesting an animal. Like, like you, you know, it's okay. Like you're, you're hunting, it's legal for you to hunt here. You know, like you can do this, you can carry mm-hmm. the gun onto the land. And that, that was, like, one of the hardest things for me to get over was, like, <laughs> walking by someone who was out hiking and being like, hey. You know, yeah, like yeah. I did, I did that this last fall. I was I was walking out after a very unsuccessful trudge around. That's all it was. Uh, with a gun. <laughs> and waders. And, uh, and chest waders. <laughs> I went a very far distance in chest waders. Um, I was also hunting with... A 308 AK 47 <laughs> platform. So wow. I essentially looked like a, uh, I don't know, probably like I would have run. Probably yeah. like yeah. one of those like quintessential Russian James Bond bad guys, but in chest waders and an orange vest. <laughs> and I walked by a dude out walking his husky, and he was like, "Hey, what's up? You get anything?" And I was like, "Nope." But that was that. I remember yeah. as I saw him walking up, I was like, "Great, this guy's gonna head for the hills." Yeah, but yeah. Nope, just walked right by. He's like, "Hey, how's it going?" You know. Casual yeah, interaction. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Like, I've been in some of the stuff where you're kind of fearful, and then generally, I'd say that is what happens. You're like, oh, that yeah. was awesome. Well, I'll tell you, you know? what. Mark, I've never met anybody like Mark where the guy goes out hunting during whatever season he's in, and oh, somehow yeah. the next Monday we come in and ask him how he did, and he's like, well, I met this one guy. We wound up hunting together for like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, used his dog. Yeah, he had a dog, so Mark we used hunts that. over dogs and oh, doesn't yeah. own one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, learned his learned his wife and his kid's name. We, we decided, you know, this Friday we're going to have a grill out, you know, and, and everything. And, it's like and let me the, show you my banded goose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Don't forget that. But anyway, yeah, I don't know how Mark's just a social butterfly. Well, <laughs> even the other thing, I think, you know, it's because when you meet somebody hunting, you're instantly on common ground. Well, I got to okay. say, though, because if anybody came up to me and they were like, just, you know, hey, how's it going? We're both out hunting. Hey, can I use your dog? Want to hang out sometime? <laughs> how about this Friday? I'd be like, get away from yeah. me. <laughs> I think you're embellishing how these interactions go, by the way. But um, I don't know. I did have a question for Micah. When you've done, sorry, I'm switching gears again, but I just want to. Sometimes I want to track. Clutch. I, well, I want to. Gas <laughs> off, clutch in, switch gears, dump the clutch. Nailed it. Go. When you've participated in these learn to hunt programs, did you have kids? Yeah, I had uh, I had one at the time of deer, and I think I had my second by the time of learning okay. learn to hunt with ducks. It's yep. been it's a blur. So, and I guess my question is because you know I've got two kids as well, and I know time is like you just don't mm-hmm. have a ton of time. So, right. how did you how did you manage that? Yeah, it, that's one of the best parts about it too. Is is they make it very convenient, especially like with the programs where there's more of the learn to hunt deer. I think was maybe a little easier for me. Otherwise, it's like. 
you know, with Duck, it's like, here's this one class. It's coming up. Make time if you can. You know, there's not, like, a ton of options mm-hmm, around it. Mm-hmm. But it's not like the classes take forever. And and there's generally choices. So you can say, I, th- I think it's, you know, you can hunt today, this day, or that. And, like, with turkey, for example, I think it was you could, if you made it out early, you could have hunted a Friday. You could have hunted a Saturday. And if your mentor was willing, you could go out on a Sunday. So you can okay. fit things in. But they, they go out of their way. And your mentor will go out of their way, too. I shouldn't guarantee that, <laughs> but in my experience, the mentors have gone out of their way to make things kind of fit my, well, I think, my time. Yeah, the people who volunteer and work on these programs, are they're super passionate about it. They wouldn't be spending the time if they did. And, you know, for us, it's so important to like, get people the experience. That's what it's all about. And so for our turkey program... We extend our license waiver all the way to up until the turkey season's open. And we try to have these programs before the actual hunting season's open so people can learn how to buy a license, say at least get a gun in their hands, go out and get, you know, the baseline feel for it. And a lot of the times for turkey hunting, especially people just want to go over and over and over again. And there's opportunity to do that. And, uh, you know, I, the people from these programs have been amazing. You know, there's been some from the last few years who took the program, never shot a rifle before, never killed a deer. They shot a deer during the program. They bought their own license. They checked out a gun. We have a firearm loaner program at the yeah. DNR. And nice. oh, wow. they they went out on public land and killed a deer and hauled it out and, and either took it to a processor yeah. or they butchered it themselves, maybe with some, the help of a mentor. But, like, you can... You can do it. Yeah. It's, uh, and I think that the people who take the programs are very motivated. It's yeah. a very high class of people. Very cool. cool. What are you guys seeing as far as like people who like continue on? Like, let's say a person does a learn to hunt deer and then, or learn to hunt for food, buying licenses and kind of continuing along that path on their own. Is that, yeah, that's a question lies near and dear to my heart because I did my master's degree looking at that question. So I've done a lot of research on, you know, the hunter adoption model and the outdoor recreation adoption model. So basically we're trying to figure out, like, what are the stages that people have to go through to become an avid, uh, ind- not necessarily independent, but how are we going to get them to buy licenses over and over and over again? And one of the tricky things about measuring that is that hunters, take your average hunter, they might not buy a license every year. They might go a year and yep. um, just say, like, oh, my friends are out of town or, you know, I broke my leg or whatever. And so it's not, they just don't go. But, you know, if if their brother from out of state comes back in and yep. they want to go hunting, that's when they're going to do it again. And so what we used was this uh, survival model. So we did kind of the same thing. Um, It's mark recapture models. So the same things when you band a duck, you know, the hunter shoots it, they call the number in, and people can use statistics to figure out, like, all right, what does the population look like, and and are these certain animals surviving, and what does that mean? So what I got to do, since everybody who buys a license gets their very own customer ID number at the DNR, it sticks with you for life, so we can look at all the different licenses that you have purchased throughout your throughout your hunting career, uh, so to speak. But So the first time you take a program, either learn to hunt or hunt for food, you also get a DNR customer ID number that's required, so we can track you. And we are, we're not very big brother about it or anything like that, but it's the same thing when you buy a license. So we can... We have just decades of data 
So the DNR has um, an electronic licensing system, and it's huge. Mm -hmm. So we can go back and look at a certain person and say, all right, you bought a conservation patron's license in 2011, or next year you bought only a gun deer license, or you know, we can look at all that information. We can look at your demographic information. You always put in your birth date, um, mm -hmm. things like that. So I got to use, I literally ran mark recapture models on people. So that was fun. And what we found was that the Hunt for Food program is a lot more effective at retaining hunters than the Learn to Hunt program. Uh, probably for the reasons I mentioned that the Learn to Hunt program has been branded mainly for kids. And it's a okay. great program. Um, but just taking a kid who has never hunted before, it's a lot more work and they're not as likely to develop that network. So hmm. my hypothesis is, I couldn't quite prove this, but is that the more you can interact with hunters and become, you know, have a relationship with somebody who can keep going with you, the more likely you are to keep hunting. So what we try to do in the Hunt for Food programs is make connections and develop relationships and help people feel comfortable enough where they can come back next year, call us, call their mentor, call somebody we recommend and feel mm -hmm. comfortable going again. So... What was interesting and not surprising, I guess, but we also had a control group of people who didn't take either learn to hunt or hunt for food. And those people had the highest survival rates. So if you come from probably a hunting family, you're more, you're most likely yeah. to hunt. Okay. okay. I'm curious, and this might be a topic, I mean, this probably is a topic for another podcast down the road, but we talked about, like, the learn to hunt and, you know, hunt for food, and that obviously applies to hunting and fishing. Now, there's the other side of the coin here, and this is where it's definitely probably something for a future podcast, but for, the sh like, shooting sports. I know just in passing, you know, talking in on our way in here, you mentioned that you've been doing a lot of stuff at, like, public shooting ranges and stuff like that, and that's a huge funding source yeah. for all this stuff. So, like, what... You know, just give me the high level, and then probably this will be something that we get on the books later at a later date. But what is are some of the things that are going on on that side of things right now? Yeah, so it's this is one of the reasons that you know hunting has become so interesting to me is that there's so much history to it, and it's so inter you know con the conservation side of things is so interconnected with hunters, anglers, and the shooting sports. And so the the shooting sports are very popular right now. <laughs> it was it was really interesting. So when uh, Obama was president, gun sales spiked mm -hmm. because uh, people were afraid that their guns were being taken away. And mm -hmm. it's leveled off now, I think, because there's less fear maybe. But yeah, sale of uh, firearms and ammunition, which includes not only hunting firearms, but also pistols and, you know, sporting guns and things like that. And all of that, all of the ammunition that goes into that. So it gets put into this big federal pot. Well, sorry, I should start over. So whenever you buy a firearm or ammunition, there's an 11% excise tax mm -hmm. on it. And that 11% of the purchase price is just built in goes to this big federal pot, and every year it accrues billions of dollars, yep. and every year the federal government reallocates all of that money back to the 50 states earmarked for conservation programs, and that's important uh, that it's earmarked for conservation because, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do with budgets and pull money from different things, and mm -hmm. um, that is just legally not allowed for this money. So um, whenever you buy a firearm, <laughs> you're yeah. contributing to conservation. And the way it's reallocated is that um, it's 
the amount of money that each state gets is based on the size of the state. So bigger states get more money than smaller states, but also the number of licensed hunters. So the more hunters you have, the more money you get. So that's why that's the other side of the coin where it's really yeah. important to buy a hunting license in addition to that. So yeah, it's great that shooting has been so popular lately. Um, it'll be interesting to see what that looks like in the yeah. next few years. I think it's just very driven by kind of what's happening politically in yeah, society yeah. every year. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting to me because, you know, I came from a culture that, you know, guns are scary. And that was yeah. one of the biggest barriers for me was feeling comfortable with firearms. And now I love them, which yeah. is great. But yeah, so what I was talking with Eric about earlier was the new Columbia County uh, shooting range. And it's the first uh, publicly owned and open to the public shooting range that's opened in over 20 years. So, nice. um, yeah, we just had, you know, extra, you know, more funding than usual that we were able to do that. And then additionally, um, in Columbia County, people were, you know, finding areas on public lands to shoot and it's legal to do that in Columbia County, but, um, it just wasn't very safe where they were doing yeah. it. They were bringing like appliances and tires and all these things. And there's like a subdivision, <laughs> like hey, over bring the your refrigerator, we'll <laughs> right? <it> full of tannerite. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so... Um, so they they decided like all right we've got the money we've got the need you know this is like a politically neutral kind of thing and yep. so let's build a shooting range and it just opened last July it's been really popular cool. and it's it's kind of interesting talking with folks a lot of the people who are shooting there they may not hunt but yeah. you know they're still they're still interested in contributing mm-hmm. yep. for sure cool. Mm-hmm. Well, now you guys don't have to clean up Eric's refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be yeah. terrible. Golf darn it, that guy. Yeah, I don't know where he gets <laughs> all these, all these shots thrown out, man. <laughs> the, the last big question I had on my mind was, I think way back towards the beginning, before we, you know, as we were so excited and things were just going all over the place, it, you mentioned some of the ramifications that could happen of a declining hunter population, you know, and and say this. Trend continues, which a lot of the uh, you know folks out there say it will, and you know just it keeps going down. What are some of these ramifications that could happen? Like the really potentially yeah, negative things. I think you know there's there's different angles you can look at that from, and so we were just talking about how hunting and the shooting sports literally contribute directly to the state conservation programs, especially. So the legislative act that. Um, that functions through is called the Pittman-Robertson Act or the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act. And that's been in place since 1933. Um, So we've had over 80 years of that. And since that money goes directly to state agencies to, you know, for the purpose of wildlife restoration, (laughs) that's where a lot of agency money comes from. Like, the staff time it's jobs yep exactly um like direct program funding for purchasing lands doing the habitat management um doing research on wildlife populations that all stems from Pittman Robertson Mm -hmm. and that's not to say that you know there's not other sources of funding for that kind of work there's a lot but from the state agency level which manages all the public lands in the state you know Wildlife is in the public trust. Nobody owns it. Everybody owns it. And the state is what it's the, you know, the organization that manages those like resources or not even resources, but they're, they're more than that for everybody. And, uh, you know, it, it 
kind of sucks to talk about money all the time, but that's where it comes from, and that's what yeah. enables people to do that. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like you, you go to a piece of public land, and you're whether you're there to walk in with your dog, you know, just on a hike, or if you're going hunting and you see a mowed trail, that's not an accident. That is there for a reason, and your funding that you contributed is why that is there. Now, without that, that public land is going to be an overgrown mess. The wildlife management that's on the backside of that diminishes, and now where do we sit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the dark side of the coin. Right. I know there's also discussion, too, you know, getting outside of even a little bit of the money aspect, and some of this comes up as well when people discuss certain hunts being taken away. Like, for example, we were talking with those guys um, about the black bear hunt in New Jersey. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. But a decreasing amount of hunters means a potentially decreasing amount of animal... Oh, what's the word? You know, like, your population's getting kind of screwed up, right? Because those yeah. tags get put out there for a reason. It's not just because, like, oh, hey, I guess we'll give you guys some tags. You can go have fun and, mm-hmm. you know, shoot something. Oh, just it's, implementing it as, like, an effective management tool? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, hunters, so, you know, from an ecological perspective, and my supervisor <laughs> may not like me for saying this, but, you know, the deer population, especially a lot of conservationists and ecologists, they, the deer population is too high and they're completely decimating native plant communities. And, you know, without natural predators who are able to control those populations right now, hunters are really the only effective force that can ma- like make an right. impact. So it's, you know, the reason I love this, I keep saying this, but there's so many angles to look at this from. And Wisconsin is so interesting because it's got such a culture and people are so passionate about deer and, you know, sometimes it can be frustrating trying to make decisions, but it's also just like I love the passion people bring to the table on a lot of these issues. Right. Yeah. Regardless um, of what side they're on. Yeah. Because you, know, you got to respect the passion. Totally. And uh, it's kind of the same thing, Canada geese. And, it, you know, the interesting part is that, you know, wildlife restoration brought a lot of these species to the levels that they're at right now. I mean, you I mean, deer and Canada geese. I remember my dad, he's a baby boomer. He told me that he didn't see a deer in his life until he was in college, like over age 20. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's that's in the 70s even. Yeah, yeah and now you, it's you, hard to drive around without hitting one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you talk, you talk to guys that are in, that once lived or in areas that are now like essentially covered up in deer yeah. and they'll tell you the story when they saw the first deer track on their property yeah. <laughs> and that. it was like a cause for celebration yeah. you know yeah. it's probably where some of those urban legends about you know the hodag and the chupacabra came <laughs> up so what think. are these tracks we've yeah. <laughs> seen this before yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, another angle is, like, the human-wildlife conflict side of things. You mentioned it's hard to drive around without hitting a deer. I mean, that it has implications. But, yep. you know, another one that I think is interesting is just the public support for hunting. Mm-hmm. Like, if hunting declines, there's fewer people to, you know, talk about it and give it good public representation. Yep. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting... Coming from a non-hunting culture again and having been adopted into this culture and I do it and I'm avid um, and I enjoy it, like my opinion has changed completely. And I think that, you know, based on some of the, you know, the, the concern about firearms around the country, like I would have, I was, I kept asking like, why aren't, why aren't guns banned? Like, why do yeah, we sell right. guns? And I, I just think it's really important for hunters to talk about yep. how they use them and how 
mm-hmm. safe they are, um, if they're used correctly. And um, I agree with that like 100%. Yeah. You got yeah. to come out of the bunker and engage yeah. people. You can't just call people idiots. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I have friends who think, or friends of friends who think it's kind of crazy to go out squirrel hunting <laughs> and all, all this kind yeah. of like, just to have guns out in Asia. That, isn't that dangerous? And when you actually talk about like how fun it is to hunt, how important it is, and how like what really matters to it, like the harvesting of game, and actually share meat with them too, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Yeah. Yep, um, it, it can change minds so quickly rather yep. than just like thinking people are idiots and not talking to them and that kind of thing. There's no time for that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of um, hunters about this issue, and especially from hunting conservation organizations like NWTF, National Wild Turkey Federation, and Pheasants Forever, and um, there's there's a number of them. And some of them, you know, we've been trying to reach and saying, like, how can you bring in more young people? You know, does this issue, are you aware of this issue of declining hunters? Does it matter to you? Um, what are you going to do about it? Because you're the only ones who can pass on this knowledge. And a lot of them are aware. They're afraid of what that means for hunting in the future. But they just, for some reason, don't feel like they can do anything about it. Or, you know, welcoming a young person into their organization is too hard. And, well, looking at that, well, what's going to happen after you're gone? Is your chapter just not going to be there anymore? Right. And they say, well, yeah. And that's always so sad. <laughs> like, yeah. These organizations are huge parts of the conservation story, and it would be just devastating not to have them anymore. But, you know, on the on the flip side of that, you know, to me, hunting is a part of how I express my land ethic, or it's how I connect with land and be a participant in the ecosystem. And that's a little hippie-ish, I guess, but I, I think that... <laughs> I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. But I think that that would be a real loss to society. Totally. Um, that we've said before that when you're out hunting, you see things and you experience things that you would never do while you're hiking yep. or boating or whatever. And I really do think that people are becoming more disconnected from nature wildlife. and wildlife. And I, I think that doesn't bode well. Yep. Totally. Mm. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Great stuff. I like it. I like where we're at, too, because we're... MC Ryan's got the... Uh, oh, you know what I just realized? It gets redder. It gets more <laughs> red. I noticed that. The yep. further we go beyond an hour. Yep. Well done over there, MC Ryan. That is a that is a great I wonder what trip. happens if we hit two hours, if that screen just, Full like, red. just <laughs> melts. Full red. Blows up. Falls off the wall. Um, our mics just shut off. Yeah. I've got two questions. I was going to say, Mark, <laughs> I I'm just... fully expect you to close us out <laughs> with... A number of different things, all in rapid succession. So please, do fire your away. Thing. Okay, two questions, and I don't Which means four. <laughs> yep, and then seven or eight last calls. Got gotcha. thirty seconds. Yep. <laughs> God, you guys know me. Other states. So I know you work on Wisconsin with Wisconsin, but do other states have similar programs that people have access to? Yeah, it's definitely growing. So Wisconsin, at least we like to think of ourselves as you know the cutting edge of our three efforts, and I think that's because. You know, it you know, this paper and this trend was kind of identified here, but other states definitely are following along. There's our three coordinators in over 30 other states, and that number is growing a lot. There's a lot of new national organizations like the Council to Advance Hunting and the Shooting Sports, and I think um, just different agencies and organizations, you know, on the hunting side and non-hunting side of conservation are starting to really say like, okay. This is happening. This is an issue. What are we going to do about it? 
you know, if, if hunters are going to continue to decline, something's still got to happen. So right. <laughs> whether or not it's reversing that trend or slowing it down, people are recognizing it. Okay, cool. Question two, if a person is so inspired to become a mentor, and I guess maybe you can speak probably specifically to Wisconsin on this one, mm-hmm. um, not <laughs> other states, but how do they do that? Um, so you can contact me directly. My, can you put my contact information on the podcast? Yes. Okay. yes. Um, so you can contact me directly or any one of our R3 team. You can look us up online. I imagine you could contact anybody on the Vortex team as well. Yep. Um, we'll just shuffle them to you. It sounds yeah. good. <laughs> but, I mean, even on your own, like I mentioned before, if you have a kid or a friend or yeah. I've heard of people even taking their doctors and asking them, hey, you want to go pheasant hunting? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they're totally into it. Just, you know, just offer because the, the the highest success rates that people have showing people how to hunt and creating a new hunter is just asking them. And you never know what you're going to get. And let's see, what else? Or even, you know, there's apps that you yep. can download. Powderhook is the main one I'm thinking of that are designed specifically for people to be able to answer questions just digitally. Yeah, there's okay. hardly any time commitment. You don't have to meet anybody anywhere if you don't want to. Yep. But people always have questions. And if you have the expertise, yep. you can cool. answer. I don't know if I would highly recommend uh, utilizing a ton of the folks around here, at least the ones that I've utilized. <laughs> no, not no, nothing against you guys, Eric and Mark in this room, but I can't. I, I gotta say, every time we've gone out, it has been a disaster, and I absolutely. <laughs> it's not about the, the end result. I would like to point that out. <laughs> but here's 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 the funny thing. So I shouldn't say that I don't recommend him. I recommend pretty much anybody who's willing to go out with you. And uh, I was I just have to give you guys some crap. Um, <laughs> even though, truthfully, every time we've gone out has been an utter train wreck, aside from the Nebraska trip, which went excellently, the train wrecks have made me even more interested and in, yep. in yes. more excited. <laughs> totally. I, I love them the most. I actually tell, I, I, I almost never tell the story about when we shot that deer. I tell all the stories about all the train wrecks that we've had. Yep. Yeah. That's what Those I was the ones so, going yeah. to say, too, is you don't have to be an expert to be a mentor at oh, all. Yeah. Like, you don't have to make something happen every time. We're it's, living proof. Yeah, I know. One of my favorite stories, my, my coworker, John, he offered to take us duck hunting on the Mississippi in short story. Like, long story short, his waders leaked, the, the fuel line on the boat broke, and we paddled out to the island, which was already occupied by somebody else. We had to go farther yeah. away to a less ideal spot, and overall, one teal was shot, and it was just, but it was still Glory. fun. Yeah, at least you didn't end the up. The stove blew up. Oh, oh man. <laughs> yeah. At least, at See, least you, at least you didn't end up in the, uh, yeah. in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, we're normal. Although that yeah. would have been an even better story. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so much better than oh yeah we went out we pounded a limit oh yeah oh, yeah yeah i mean not that that's not fun and <laughs> that's you know i'd like yep. to go do that but. every time we go anywhere eric always tells us we're gonna just <laughs> just <laughs> hammer hey expect up. the best but deal with the worst <laughs> that's my mantra i've heard the opposite so many times so i guess yep. i don't know maybe you know something i don't and those other people don't and it pretty much everybody else doesn't but everyone else is wrong i mean clearly <laughs> that's my motto yeah yep. <laughs> Jim, last calls. I'd say I think we're I think we pretty much nailed it. Okay. Plus that screen just keeps getting redder and redder. <laughs> um, it's, giving, it's giving me anxiety. Big, big thanks to our new guests to the podcast, 
Micah, we were discussing, thought it was a little bit uh, interesting. It must be a little interesting for you coming from being copywriter. So uh, we actually made him talk <laughs> uh, rather than just write down all of his thoughts. Yes. So that's, that's pretty huge. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. With that said, Mark, you do it. You do the close. Man, thanks for tuning in, everybody. If you do hunt, take somebody hunting. I'm talking to myself as well on this one. And uh, let's let's turn this trend around. I like it. Okay. All right. Happy yep. hunting and shooting, everybody. Thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks so much for having us on the show. Yeah. Bye. All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.